everyone. Thanks again for joining us here at Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital revolution and the thought leaders and business executives who are helping to drive changes in how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is Chris Lockhead, legendary entrepreneur, tech industry CMO, category guru, executive coach, best-selling author, and quite recently been named one of the world's top business podcasters. Christopher, how the heck are you? Well, I'm feeling good after that intro. You're, you're, you're raising my self-esteem immediately, Bob. Thank you. <laughs> well, it, it's, uh, we can only go down from here then, Chris. So uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what we can do. And, um, you know, folks, this is, uh, this is Chris's third appearance on Cloud Wars Live. And last month, uh, Chris initiated a program, part of our Digital All-Star series. It'll be a monthly series where he's on. We're talking about Lockhead on Different. And Chris has become a proponent of that angle and that'll come out in some of the things we talk about today. And it's also, Chris, pretty much um, tied closely to your last best-selling book, Niche Down. Yes, and I'm, I'm concocting the third book, which will have a very different-esque theme as well. Okay, okay, well, all right, we look forward to that. And um, Chris, so one of the things that just wanted to check in with you, right? Because a lot of this notion today, we, you know, we get business executives in lots of different industries. And they're very comfortable talking about product differentiation and here's why we're unique and this and that. Yet on the larger scale or the actual scale, right? There's so many companies just seem to be terrified of being different and they just sort of slowly and cautiously and boringly tack toward the norm. Why does that happen? Why is it so difficult for companies to bust out of that? Well, I think um, it goes back to human design, <laughs> Bob. Yeah. You know, you and I as human beings, human beings are naturally pack animals, right? And so if we're out on a camping trip together and there's maybe a group of us and uh, we're going to set up our tents for the evening, uh, chances are we're going to set our tents, uh, tents up together in a, in a, you know, a closely knit area. And the reason is, and you know, I had this experience a couple of years ago, I took this buddy of mine out camping with us and he'd never been on one of these multi-day backcountry camping trips. And he's kind of a bit of a, a little bit of a wackadoo kind of, kind of guy. I love him dearly. Anyway, so the group of us, I don't know, six or eight of us, we set up around the fire and my buddy sets up like way over there by himself. So none of us say anything. We're all kind of looking at each other laughing and we have dinner and all that. And we're sitting out there and we're looking up at the cloud, looking up at the stars in the beautiful Sierra evening. And all of a sudden my buddy whose tent is way over there has an aha. And he, he goes, Oh, Hey, um, could somebody help me uh, set my tent up um, uh, near you guys? And I'm of course laughing to myself. And I said to him, Hey, uh, what's wrong? You got a beautiful spot way the hell over there. And he goes, I just realized why all you guys are together. It's because there's bears in the Sierra, right? I said, yeah. And so as human beings, we are comforted by being like each other. We want to be accepted. And of course, at the very deepest primordial level, we know that one over here versus a pack animal over here, that's the one that's going to get eaten by the bear. So human beings are pack animals. I think it goes, it's that primordial. And then in business, it takes courage to be different. But the big aha is that what most companies are doing, what most businesses are doing, is they're doing better. They're doing something 
something that is incremental in nature. And when they go to market, they have a better conversation and they have even worse, a comparison conversation. Legends don't do that. You know, the legends that you cover at Cloud Wars, you know, we love to talk about Benioff as an example, who for all practical purposes is the, is the creator of the cloud, the guy that made the cloud possible. And he did a very different thing, as you know, but it takes courage to be different. And uh, it can often take a lot of time. But if you look at all of the people that you and I admire, be they entrepreneurs, technologists, scientists, uh, artists, musicians, and I don't know if there's any politicians in the world we admire anymore, but if there are, um, you start to look at, well, what's the common thread? The common thread amongst these folks that we respect and admire the most is they broke or took new ground. And so the people we admire are, and I'm not sure if this is a word, but I'm going to use it anyway, they're exponentialists. They're not incrementalists. And we live at a time where we need exponential different. And it turns out in business, even though it feels more risky, in point of fact, it's not. We can talk about why it's not. Um, but we need people to do that. And that's where the value is. That's where the new jobs get created. That's where the breakthroughs in innovation and technology get created. That's where the new categories get designed. The new, new companies come to fore. And, you know, those companies go public and generate billions of dollars of market cap and new employment and so forth. And so Henry Ford was not incrementally improving on the horse. He made an exponential leap. And so that's what the legends do. And the way I look at it is, while there's a place for incrementalism, I don't want to just completely poop on it, although I'm mostly going to. There's a place for it, you know, and making things slightly better is sometimes the right thing to do. But in general, the breakthroughs, the big innovations come from somebody who had the courage to do something exponentially different that move us forward, either in technology or as a society or in business or on any dimension you want to look at. And the way I think about it is, hey, if we're going to go to work every day, if we're going to bust our heinies trying to do something and make a living and hopefully make a difference at, at, at the same time, why not do something that is significantly forwarding the action? Yeah, yeah, Chris, it's a it's a compelling uh, perspective on that. And I guess when you know you hear it, you say, yeah, 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 you know, everybody should do it. Everybody should be that way. It just makes so much sense. Yet, I don't doubt that in you know your various travels here and there, uh, whether as a CMO or exec executive coach, and you work with authors and advising uh, top executives on things, you've got to run into some very smart people, it's not a question of intelligence, but that for whatever reason, they resist that tendency to be different and whether, you know, maybe hunkered down into the incrementalism position instead of being an exponentialist or a logarithmicist. And uh, what are the reasons that they give you for that? And in return, what do you tell them? So the main reason is they look at it and they go, well, um, if you think about it from a business perspective, when you're doing something different, by definition, there is rarely a clear market for it because it, the thing doesn't exist or it's a major, maybe it exists in some form, but you're going to meaningfully step this thing forward. And so it's going to feel very, you know, so if you think about the iPhone as a simple example, sure, there were mobile phones, but jobs, if you will, redesigned the definition of what a mobile uh, phone was and for all practical purposes 
cre created or redesigned a category and kind of left BlackBerry in the dust, right? Because uh, before the definition was this device that had a tactile keyboard on it and it was primarily a communication device. And of course he changed everything. The keyboard completely changed, it became glass and, and, and email wasn't the primary use case. And so for all practical purposes, he reimagined what was possible in mobile computing and therefore redesigned, if you will, the category. And so the, the, the fear people have is, well, um, hey, why would I do that when no one's asking for it? Right. And even yeah. worse, yeah. if you focus group the iPhone, I would argue eight out of 10 people say, I don't need that. You know, I don't know about you, but uh, when the TiVo was first coming out and I heard about it, you know, the, the DVR, the digital uh, video recorder, um, I had some friends got, oh, this is really cool. You got to get this thing. I was like, why do I need that? I'm perfectly used to watching TV the way that I do. And that sounds interesting or whatever. But and then when you get one, you're like, holy camoly. It's hard for me not to swear on this podcast. Well way. done. Well done. I'm doing, doing my best. Um, I don't, I'm not sure what a camoly is. Maybe I should say, you know, I have an Italian wife. Maybe I should say holy cannoli. Yes. Maybe that's good. Holy cannoli. Once you use a DVR, you never want to go back. You can't. And today we can't sit through a commercial. And today we look at it and go, hey, uh, not only that, we want to be able to binge. We want to be able to watch what we want, when we want, on whatever device we want. And when some company says, no, no, you got to wait till 8 o'clock on Thursday to watch the show. And you're like, 8 o'clock on, what are you talking about? I want it now. And I don't just want one episode. I want to hunt. I want to take control over this experience. And so my point is, when a new technology first emerges, most of us say, hey, we're fine. We don't need that. And then... Once we get conditioned to think about this new approach, we move from the old paradigm to the new paradigm. And once you get to the new paradigm, you look back at the old paradigm and you go, I can't believe we ever sat there through all that crap, Bola. <laughs> right? And that's how it always is. And in retrospect, it always looks very uh, obvious when in point of fact, whether it was cloud computing with Benioff or in this case with TiVo starting the DVR and there's many other, or, or Henry Ford with the horseless carriage. Um, you know, today when you need a new vehicle, you probably don't really think about a horse carriage. You, you want a horseless carriage. Um, and so, so the new innovation, the new category moves the world from the way it was to the way the, uh, the, uh, the way the world, the, uh, the entrepreneur, the innovator wants it to be. But in the very beginning, if you focus group it, you ask most people, Hey, uh, do, do you want or need this thing? You go, no, I love my BlackBerry. I don't, I don't need an iPhone or no, I don't need a TiVo or, Hey, I love my horse and my horse. Fred is a wonderful horse and we, he's one part of the family. What do you mean? Horseless carriage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, and Chris, it is one of those things that in hindsight, you see it very clearly as you're saying for those people on the front lines, it is, uh, whether it's a leap of faith, a leap of courage, a leap of imagination or leadership, whatever it might be, it, it, it can't be easy. And just before you came on, Bill and I were talking a little bit about Miles Davis, uh, both big fans of his and Bill Evans. And I talked about um, a class that I had taught at Carnegie Mellon, and it was uh, about creativity. And one of the books that I asked the kids to read was, uh, it's a book called The Making of Kind of Blue. And it explores Miles Davis's thinking in there. He said he knew he wanted to do something new. He kind of tried this, kind of tried that. And then he said one day, boom, it was just right there in front of him. And he said, there it is. There it is. And music, certainly jazz, was never the same after that. Yeah. And, and that's why we respect them. 
The other thing from a business point of view, and here's the fantastic dichotomy. It turns out that being conservative is the riskiest thing you can do. And here's my proof. So uh, for my first book, Play Bigger, we did an analysis of every venture-backed startup founded in the United States of America from 2000 to 2015. And we built a big data store of um, how their progression was from a funding and valuation, and then ultimately if they went public market cap perspective. And in the olden days, of course, you didn't have access to um, valuation data for private companies. And today you don't have perfect data, but you have much better data than we used to have. Anyway, so you're able to track these things. So we built a database of all this stuff. And uh, we asked the data an interesting question, which is what percentage of the total value created as measured by market cap, right? Or, or valuation or the com combination of both. Uh, the val if you take the value of every company in a given uh, market category or space and you add them all up and then you say, okay, what percentage of that value goes to the leader, the category queen, the category king? Well, it turns out that number is 76% in the tech space. <laughs> wow. So whether we like it or not, we are living in a winner-take-all world. And there's a lot of people who have this sort of uh, loopy-doopy, mamby-pamby point of view, like, well, you know, we're just going to do a good job here. And uh, we're just, we just want, you know, our fair share of the market. And this is, this is the one I hear all the time. Bob, you know, this is going to be a big, big space. And there's going to be lots of room for lots of players. And, you know, we just want our fair share, maybe a little bit more than our fair share, but that's what we want. Oh, really? Well, um, how many successful competitors does Google have? F and zero. That's how many. How many competitors does Facebook have? Zero. And so we are more and more in a winner take all world. And so if you look at it from a purely economic point of view, the less risky move is to design and therefore try to dominate a new category. If you talk to venture capitalists, the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley that have high IQs and most importantly, outsized returns. You want to talk to the top 1% of venture investors in Silicon Valley. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Jim Getz. He's a senior partner at Sequoia Capital. Uh, as most people know, Sequoia is considered to be uh, one of absolutely the top, if not the top, uh, as measured by returns. And certainly has an incredible long-term reputation. The list of companies is ridiculous, right? Oracle, Apple, Google, uh, uh, Palo Alto Networks. I mean, it's just, it's a mental uh, WhatsApp. I mean, it's just a mental list, right? It, so here's what Jim says. If the category exists, we don't want to invest. Straight up. And then he goes on to say, we want to invest in entrepreneurs who are mission-based. So they're on a mission for something. We talk about why that matters if, if, if you want. And um, that can build a great company in a great category at the same time. You know, so for example, Sequoia invested in um, Airbnb. Well, as Spinal Tap said, there's a fine line between clever and stupid. You know, in the beginning, the Airbnb folks show up and they go, hey, Bob, here's our idea. Well, we're a bunch of young folks. We can't find a place to live in San Francisco that's affordable. And what we really wish is there's a website of people willing to rent their couch to us. Well, your average 45 to 65 year old venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road says, 
that sounds like a mental idea because A, I, I the venture capitalist, would never want to do that. And B, um, this, this, this could lead to a whole sorts of series of terrible things, right? So dumbest idea for business ever, nobody wants to fund them. Nobody. They, they couldn't get arrested on Sand Hill Road. And then the Sequoia guys are willing to reimagine the possible future and, and start to think about things in a different way. Willing to take a pretty massive leap of faith. And we all know how the story ends. But in, begin, in the beginning, it sounds absolutely crazy. And here's the most important part of the story. If you hired, and I'll just pick on them because I respect them and it's fun. You, let's say you hire McKinsey. And a bunch of khaki-wearing, pleated, pant-wearing, smart people come in, and you say, hey, um, here's what we want you to do. We'd like you to do an analysis of the travel uh, space, of, of the rental market. And uh, we'd like you to look for new white space opportunities to design and dominate a new multi-billion dollar category that we can create a giant new company and completely transform the way people think about um, the whole thing. I would be willing to bet you my net worth that they do not show up with Airbnb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's one of those, those uh, you've talked about this before, you know, those, not a, I don't mean it's a game like ha 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 thing, but you know, you work on this with companies where you tell them, all right, you got half an hour, go and unlimited all the resources your company has, go figure out a way to take that company down. Yes. It's only with that sort of different attack kind of mindset, you know, freewheeling, unencumbered by what has come before. Because I just always think it's so interesting because we see these waves of disruption over and over. We see Airbnb come in and out. And yet too many of us still go back to the old incrementalist model when opportunities come up. So uh, I, I, I think your, your perspectives there are great. And to switch gears a little bit, I know you had some thoughts in, on uh, the, the whole subject of different this whole thing with the college admissions scandal and, you know, some of the crazy things going on there. So what's going on there, pal? So first of all, I find this thing totally fascinating. Just to, And, you know, a buddy of mine texted me when the first news broke of this huge scandal, right? He said, are, are you surprised? And I said, well, the only thing I'm surprised at is that we don't hear about this every other week. It's like, huh, rich people and celebrities trying to bribe the way for little Johnny to get into Stanford? Really? That's been going on, maybe not Adam and Eve, but maybe once we got Shelly and Steve, right? I mean, that the first school that ever got created that said we don't have room for everybody is when this started. So that's the first piece, but that's the less interesting piece. Here's the more interesting piece in my mind that I haven't heard anybody talk about. Here you have these uh, rich people, and um, I don't know if you're allowed to use this word, but I, I, I'll just celebutards, these moronic celebrities, right? <laughs> Trying to do this stuff. But we have it at a time when there's never been more people questioning the true value of a traditional education. And in particular, the ROI of these things. Now, I am in no way taking a poop on traditional education. I think if you can get into Stanford, God bless you. And, um, that was not an opportunity that was being offered to me, but had I had that opportunity, I would have taken it. And I think for some meaningful number of folks, uh, traditional education is a very good investment and the data bears that out. I did some research on this. On average, college grads in the United States make 58% more money 
than non-college grads. So I, I don't want to be an idiot about it. But with all that said, there are a lot of ways to be successful. And we live in one of the most exciting times in history where there are many new alternatives to university popping up and particularly fields that are uh, maybe less um, actually, I don't even want to say less technical, but you know, look, if you want to be a brain surgeon, it's hard to pick that up on YouTube, <laughs> but right. And, and probably the, the YouTube uh, hospital of brain surgeons is probably not one that you want to go to. God forbid you need brain surgery. Right. So, so in that case, Hey, we want to go to the Stanford, Harvard, super ding dong. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, again, I don't want to be stupid. However, if you are an industrious individual and you say, you know what, I, um, I want to learn how to code like a badass. Well, there are alternative ways to learn to do that. If you're an engineering oriented person, um, there are uh, different types of ed educational um, institutions being formed today. There are lots of online courses uh, in the field of marketing that I grew up in. Uh, there's lots of different marketing types of schools. There's lots of different marketing types of training. And we live at a time where with podcasts and TED Talks and, and frankly, you know, my friend Tina, Professor Tina Selig at Stanford launched the Entrepreneurial Thought Leadership Series at Stanford. They put all that stuff online. Many of the top universities are putting all their stuff online. Of course, uh, TED Talks, all these things. And so what's my point? If you're stupid today, you're really stupid. Because if you want to get yourself smart on a massive array of topics, there's a way to do that. There are experts in many, many fields sharing their expertise on the internet, on podcasts. Uh, books are being written at an extraordinary rate today. Uh, you know, our friends at Amazon make it so easy to self-publish. My first book was traditionally published. My second book was self-published through Amazon. Incredibly easy to do. You essentially send them a, a doc and bam, you're up on, on, on Amazon. And so... There's a lot of content is not a good because it doesn't value it the way I think. There's a lot of amazing stuff out there that uh, if you want to become an expert on many different topics, you can. The other thing that is interesting to me about this is many people go to university actually not for the education, but they go for two other reasons. They go for the networking, who they're going to meet. And they go for, if you will, the stamp of approval, the credential. Well, I graduated from, you know, Dilla Ding Dong University with this degree. And so you should hire me. You should, you know, whatever with me, right? Well, today, A, there's a lot of other ways to quote unquote network and, and, and to build relationships with people. And the internet makes it exorbitantly easy to do that. I've been amazed in the two years I've been doing my podcast, how easy it is to connect with people. Uh, whether they're listeners of the podcast or, you know, probably 70 or 80% of our guests are people that I know, but many of them are not. And, and in some cases, I reach out to those people. And in many cases, they respond positively. And so it's easy to get a hold of a lot of people. So anyway, my point is, you can build your network. And of course, we have social media, and we have LinkedIn, and we have all these things, right? So, so one of my best friends in, 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 in my work world today is a guy named Eddie Yoon. We've collaborated on an article for HBR. We've done all this stuff together. He's helped me with my books. I've never met him. He lives in Chicago. We have an email and Zoom-based relationship. We are going to get together for a beer sooner or later, but we have been collaborating for four or five years, and it's just never been convenient to meet in person, and I feel like he's my brother. And so, so from a relationship networking point of view, the technology allows us to do things we could never do before. And then here's the other interesting thing about this credential idea.
the internet allows us to be our own credential, to establish our own expertise. We can blog. We can share things. If we find something interesting, you know, I, I, re, I thought your, your um, post on Lyft and how much they pay uh, Amazon AWS was a fascinating post. So I repost that. I share that. So, so if we have expertise in something and or areas of interest, we can show that interest. We can demonstrate our expertise, whether it's with blogging or podcasting or YouTube channels or these sorts of things. Or even if we don't want to be the creator of that stuff, we can share interesting things that others are doing in that regard and at least show people that, um, you know, we're reading up on all the latest cool things in whatever the area of interest can be. And so my point is um, the digital world today allows us to establish ourselves as being credible. And, and so you can be your own credential. And here's my proof. And I don't mean this in a, there's a word that begins with S, but I'll say crappy. I don't mean this in a crappy way, but I've done a lot of writing. And you go and you write a blog for Fortune, and then you look at your Google Analytics and nothing happens. Suddenly nothing happens. Then I go and I write a, uh, an answer to a question on Quora, and all of a sudden, 8,000 people see it in three days. And so I've learned that, you know, with no due respect to Fortune or Forbes or whoever, and, you know, you've written for all these folks, you're doing it yourself. Um, we can be our own credential today, and we can become a trusted voice. You know, I think, did we talk last time about my friend, the chicken chick? Yeah. I think we might have. Yeah. You know, yeah. she is viewed as an authority on this thing today, this new category of, of, of pets we call backyard chickening. And when something's going on with our chickens, that she's the first place that we look. Well, she's not a vet. She has created her own credential by just being actively engaged and sharing information and talking about what she's learning. And, and she's become a trusted source to chicken owners around the world. And she's not even an effing vet because she's become her own credential. And so my point is some of the things that we went to school for are things that we can now take control of ourselves. And I'm not saying it doesn't mean that everybody doesn't need to go to school, but I find it highly ironic at a time where people are truly questioning the value of a traditional education. And there are so many alternative ways to get to, because here's the, here's the thing, right? What do you want? What you want is a legendary life. What you want is a legendary career. And today, and I'm not, look, I think education's great and it works for a lot of people, but, and it's a large Kardashian sized but, there's lots of other roads to designing and executing a legendary life. And technology uh, today allows for many of those new roads. And so I find it highly ironic that, that these idiots are willing to pay half a million dollars to get their moron social media pain in the ass, horrible child that probably should have her head, you know, stuck in a toilet for three days to see if we can get her straight anyway. But I digress. You know, we're going to pay half a million dollars to convince people that this idiot is a rower and get her into some school when in point of fact, um, there are all these other alternatives that could be, that could be explored that, uh, you know, might be a lot more advantageous for this kid. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, that was, uh, that was quite a ride there that you touched on a lot of great things, but I think you're driving home that point. You, 
when we get stuck on the old way of doing things and the old models, the old accreditations, the old credentials, there's only one way, do it the way I did it, blah, 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 blah. You know, you get, you run into some bad outcomes here. And I thought your point about the things with colleges, I, you know, I have, uh, uh, one of my brothers has been a college professor for decades and uh, another one spent a fair amount of time there. So I got nothing against him. I think, you know, a lot of kids is wonderful, but that's the slowest moving, most hidebound business, if you want to call it that, in the world. So I thought it was pretty cool. I think it was a week ago, um, this, this company that I think is really stirring up the tech industry, Qualtrics, part of SAP, their CEO on stage said, we have had in the last six months, he said, an unprecedented surge of inquiries from universities because they realize they have zero insight into the experiences they're creating for their students. They just get the money, they put them in, and you know, then off they go somewhere. So if even um, an industry like the edu higher education is, is finally starting to get it, uh, maybe they'll be open to some of the ideas you talked about. Maybe they'll be willing to um, tie in with some of these things like that and even to give people you know more of those options you talked about or maybe they just continue down their path and these other things will emerge as well but what you brought this down to it wasn't about how to get a degree how to get an education you said how do you live a legendary life how do you build a legendary career and that I think is just an enormously important message almost like putting the goal up at the front of things where too many people are saying, well, to get to my goal, I got to take the old route, the old path, the tired and true and worn out alternative. And, and so that's one of the reasons I enjoyed speaking with you about it because you, you shake people up and you know, don't fall into the trap because there are other ways of doing things, the technology, the mindset and the expectation on the other side. I don't know that you know, when I talk to people about it that I've ever said the first thing, well, where did you go to school? And tell me the list of classes you took. And, you know, who cares? I think we've seen some nobody big Nobody ever asked me. Right? I mean, nobody ever asked me. And I think and I, and a lot of the people that I know that didn't have a higher education didn't get asked either because you learn early on in your career how to produce legendary results, how to teach yourself. You know, you, you got to read. You, you know, I love this expression, uh, leaders or readers. You know, when I was, when I was, I started my first business at 18, I read everything that I could get my hands on. You know, I read Information Week and CRN and PC Magazine and all the tech stuff that was going on at the time. And I read lots of business. You know, we recently just had um, Ken Blanchard on my podcast. Mm -hmm. It was such a thrill. You know, the one minute manager, Great. I read Drucker's ex uh, Effective yeah. Executive to learn how to organize myself and, you know, get stuff done. And, 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 and just tons of great legendary marketing books. David Ogilvy is a hero of mine and, yeah. you know, so many of these things. So there's lots of reading we can do, you know, Zig Ziglar at the time called it the automobile university. Cause we used to listen to tapes today. We do that with podcasts or audio books. You know, you think of how wonderful the, the world of audio books is today. And so there's a lot of ways to get yourself smart. And, and I do think we're asking the wrong question because the, what, these, what these idiots are asking is, how do I get my moron kid into Stanford as opposed to how do I get my moron kid to design a legendary life and become a successful, happy, productive, awesome member of society who hopefully is making a contribution as opposed to puking garbage on Instagram and, and is a substantive person that's admirable and does good things in the world and, 
you know, maybe has a family of their own or whatever their dreams are, right? But the question is, how do we enable people, whether they're young people or I don't care how old they are, because I think legendary people are learners all through their life. How do we enable a legendary life and what kind of learning do we need to do that? And sometimes, many cases, a traditional education makes sense. But, you know, sometimes it's exactly the wrong thing. But the big one, which is, I think, the point you're on, we got we to gotta change the question. The question is, if you have a 17 or 18-year-old daughter or son or nephew or anybody in your life you care about, and they're, they're looking at this, the question is, how do I enable this person to design a legendary life? The other one we can't look past is there are many people who have an extraordinary education and they don't get done paying for it until they're 45. It is criminal what has happened around the cost of education in the United States as compared to other um, first world countries. It's criminal what we've allowed happen. And, 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 and this is, you know, to quote the Big Lebowski, this aggression will not stand, man. And these universities won't change until there's pressure to change. And part of the way you do that is some of the smartest kids in the world look at alternatives. And, and I also think there's lots of for-profit and non-profit companies starting to emerge that uh, are, are alternatives that are focused in particular areas that, and here's the other one. You know what's making a comeback, Bob? apprenticeships you want to be a legendary coder maybe you get yourself trained up maybe you take some of these alternative uh education opportunities that exist there's a million online classes and in, in, in all these things so you get yourself to some base level of competence and then maybe you find one of these wonderful apprenticeship programs where you go you go work at a great company you know and and you spend six or eight months or a year or two years whatever it is side card to some legendary, you know, in this case, coders, but I don't care what it is, right? This, this, if, if, you, if you think about it, there's some industries where apprenticeship is critical. If you want to be a doctor, that's what an intern is, right? Uh, you want to be a tattoo artist, you got to apprentice under a legendary tattoo artist if you want anybody to let you, you know, poke them with a needle. <laughs> and so, but in, in a lot of areas, um, this notion of working as an apprentice, of building your craft, of, of training under a legendary master has been lost. Well, that's starting to make a comeback. And the value of that, of a practical approach centered around apprenticeship is a very powerful thing that, you know, some of the higher education places, um, you know, uh, are, are too book oriented and, and less apprentice practical in the field, real world oriented. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, great stuff. I love that idea. The apprentice thing, I think, uh, right? Because time scales, I believe, are, are shortening these days, right? Uh, companies don't have three or four or five years to fix some of their problems. They got to get it done in 12 or 18 months, or they're going to be done. And I think young people, right? You know, some people are going to take the four-year path. Nothing wrong with that. But there's other folks that are going to say, I need to get ahead. And if I can work, work my ass off for somebody who's really smart, proven, capable, and I can bring something to that as well as learning. In two years, I'm going to be so far ahead of where I would have been on a traditional path at four years. You know, it, it, it's going to make my head spin. And uh, hey, I got to tell you a college story. So maybe one of the reasons why I beat up on colleges a little bit is because I was so bad at it. Um, I took an accounting course, uh, I think in my junior year. And I know on the midterm, I had no idea what was going on. And I submitted a midterm. When I got it back, it said, F, uh, what is this in giant red letters? Uh, 
and it might, but I got 50 points out of 100. I, I don't think I deserve five, but I got 50. On the final, uh, I don't know what I did, but I know my final grade was a C. I, I don't think I learned anything in the second half. To, I, I guess I had to get an A, but that's just not possible. So um, I don't know whether they, they needed to not, whatever the karmic thing was that I did not get the F I deserved. But Chris, so you mentioned the check and check. You've got some great ideas about uh, different ways of approaching education and preparing yourself for a legendary life, more importantly. Where are some other businesses or industries that you feel are really starting to get this, the, the difference engine and really driving that forward? Well, I'm so glad you asked, Bob. <laughs> uh, sure. I had this aha last year. And um, the aha is, this is the greatest time in history for our industry. And hard, it's hard to argue it's not the greatest time in history to be alive. You know, when you and I were young guys coming up, there were a few, two or three ginormo kind of innovations going on. The PC was really taking flight and the, the move from mainframes and minis to client server and, you know, PC networking and client server. You know. So there was two or three major things going on. And those were giant um, uh, new innovations, new categories, new technologies that, that, that over time enabled massive new approaches to business, massive new approaches to life, very, very exciting, et cetera, et cetera. But those are two or three major things going on. If you go through the list today, it's a stunner. And I, in preparation for today, just wrote out a couple. Uh, AI, IoT, cloud, crypto, um, uh, blockchain, drones, robots, cloud, social, mobile, uh, machine learning, and self-driving everything. So I don't know exactly how many that is, but, you know, plus or minus a dozen. And if you take a step back and you start to think about all of those things, and of course, those things intersect, right? So 3D print printing intersects with blockchain, uh, by, just by way of example. Um, and and, and the massive opportunity of self-driving and, and so forth and so on. And so to get to your question, I think the smart people are going through that, that list and asking themselves a set of questions in no particular order. Um, what do those things mean for me personally in my career? Um, what do those things mean for my company if I'm a company leader? What do they mean for me in the category uh, or marketplace that I compete in? What do they mean in my industry? And, and start to think about, okay, so what is self-driving? What is AI? What is crypto? What does blockchain mean? And actually start to do some thinking work. I believe that thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. So, you know, you grew up in the publishing business, right? So we sit there and go, so, so what, does, um, what does blockchain mean in publishing? You, you and I, if we sat down over a nice whiskey, we could have a three-hour conversation. We could start whiteboarding stuff out, start putting notes on the board. So, and we would begin to have a hypothesis about what it might or might not mean around publishing. And then you go through all those other things. I think if you're a smart thinking person, you have to wrap your arms around this stuff and start to, start to game plan out what some of these things might mean. Um, we had a futurist on my podcast recently who, who said that the next mega category is going to be wearables. 
that we are all going to be wearing. So the, the Google Glass stuff is going to come back. And that what AR, and actually, I didn't even mention AR and VR. They're on the list too. Yeah. What AR is going to mean is that there will be a complete blurring of lines around um, physical and digital. And so we'll be, you know, you, you'll be in downtown San Francisco and you'll need to go to a meeting at, um, at Salesforce. And if you're like me, you won't know how to get there. And there's a high degree of likelihood you get lost on the way. Well, you're going to have these glasses on and they're going to show you that, you know, your, your ways is going to be in your eyeball, right? Uh -huh. And ultimately, of course, the glasses will go away and it'll just be implanted in our heads, right? This, this stuff is going to happen. So anyway, what's my point? I think if you're smart today, you list out the major innovations that are happening and they're happening very, very quickly. And you begin to game out what they could potentially mean in your career, in your company, in your category, and in your industry. And you do some real thinking like sit down talk to smart people brainstorm some stuff out and begin to develop some hypothesis around these things and then ask yourself if i was smart and i was me based on this thinking about thinking that we just did if i was smart and i was me what would i do about it where would i start to dabble where would i start to play the other thing i think we all have to do and i try to remind myself about this all the time is um, we have to be willing to be wrong. Yeah. There's a lot of things we think are true that are going to certainly evolve and may end up being very wrong going forward, right? So I guess my point is, I think there's a massive amount of innovation going on. I think my friends, Duncan Davidson and uh, of Bullpen Capital and Mike Maples of Floodgate Capital, who say that, um, the time we're living in now is akin to the late 1800s and the early 1900s, where we had this massive innovation wave in electric light and the automobile and, and the industrial revolution and so forth. There are very smart people in Silicon Valley and elsewhere who think that's exactly we're living in that time. And that if you were to go night night right now and wake up in, in 2040, you won't recognize the world. We now know for sure that babies that are being born today are going to live to 120. That's going to happen. They're going to be, it may, and it may very well be that that's the average lifespan. If that's not true for the babies that are being born now, it will be very soon. And so there's this, this, I almost said the S word, this stuff is happening. And so I think we have to think about this stuff and we have to game it out and we have to ask ourselves if we were smart and we were us, what would we do in our career, in our business, in our category and in our industry about it to take advantage of it, to be part of it, and hopefully to use these innovations for positive things and, and um, value and wealth creation. Chris, those are great questions. Great questions. I think pair those up with the notion of, uh, you know, what do I want to do? Well, you know, for a lot of people say, I, I want to have a, a legendary career and a great life. And the two can, uh, don't always go hand in hand, but they often can. And I think that's been, you know, the, the core message you brought out today. So, Thanks, pal. This was great as always. Uh, Lockhead on different, and I hope for uh, you know you listeners out there, you got a sense of, um, you know, maybe not everybody can be Chris Lockhead, but we can strive to a little bit of the the, the different angle that that's your approach. And Chris, it's it's very refreshing. And what I love about it, as much as anything, yes, it's fun and all this and exciting, high potential, but it's optimistic, right? You're not you're not saying this out of fear or out of desperation or you know the world's crappy. 
you know, it, it's a very optimistic, uplifting type of idea. And I think that that's one of the reasons that, you know, many people find it so compelling. And sometimes it takes somebody like you a little bit to give them that gentle little kick in the butt to, you know, go ahead, go ahead. You feel it inside you. Go do it. Go, go reach for it. Well, and if I could underscore that, and my friend Duncan Davidson at Bullpen, you know, helped me think this through. If you go back and you study history, the Luddites are always wrong. <laughs> so if you think about today, you take self-driving car, cars and trucks as an example. And you say, oh, by the way, I don't know if this number is true, but it's the number I hear bantied around all the bantered around all the time. Well, there's 3 million truck drivers in America. And, you know, what's going to happen to them when they don't have any jobs anymore? Yeah, well, listen, there's nobody that works in a typing pool anymore either. What happened to them? I'll tell you what happened to them. They went on to do better things. They went on to do different things of higher value. You know, the, the first time a human being created a tool, the first time a human being, Eve picked up a rock and went bam, 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 and did something with it, that was innovation. That was technology. And so that, that technology has always brought humanity forward. Look at what's going on with genomics right now. Where's it going to lead? I don't know. Is CRISPR terrifying on one dimension? Of course. And it's easy to take a negative view, whether it's self-driving cars and trucks or CRISPR or whatever it is, or GMOs and, oh, we're going to, but I believe in humanity and history says I'm right. History says human beings figure it out. History says that over time, human beings make life better for more human beings. While there's a lot of horrible things going on in our world, and we can talk about those things, and sometimes I wake up in the morning and fire up my browser or turn on my TV, and I find the longer I've been around, the more horrible things happen in the world, the more I, I have a cry about them. And I'm, I'm being serious about that, you know, because when there's a horrible tragedy in, I don't know, Indonesia, I've been to Indonesia. I know those people are just like you and me because I've hung out with them, right? And so... There's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. It would suck to be in Syria right now. Uh, absolutely. But, and it's a giant but, on balance, life has never been better for human beings on planet Earth than it is right now. And I'm not being Pollyanna about it. We have real problems. But I believe in human beings. I believe in our potential. And history says I'm right. History says that human beings figure stuff out work with new ideas, new technologies, new categories, new approaches. And while there are bad things along the way, on balance, things historically get better over time for human beings. And in the technology field, I think we have an obligation to harness those technologies to try to do good things. And I'm not saying we get it wrong. And, and I'm not, of course we do. But over time, if you, if you look at the very long tail, Life is better on planet Earth as a percentage for more people now than it ever has. If you get cancer today, the likelihood of you surviving is better now than it ever was before. And, and, and that will be true probably forever. And in this time of massive innovation, I believe, I believe in human beings. I believe we will figure it out. I believe whatever mistakes we make along the way, we will right those wrongs and we will continue forward. Couldn't agree with you more, brother. And that's a, that's a great message to wrap on, Chris. Beautifully said. Thank you very much for that. Bob Evans, as corny as it sounds, I love you. You got an awesome brain. I love what you're doing. 
Uh, I can't thank you enough for including me. And um, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I loved you back, Chris. It's great. It's great. I love all of you audience folks out there too for listening and putting up with our antics sometimes. But the deep ideas here are pretty powerful. Thanks for joining us here on Cloud Wars Live for this episode of Lockhead on Different. We'll see you next month back with Chris and in between with some other guests. Thanks again, everybody. See you soon.